And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so there's no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up, take your bed and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man as authority on earth and to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Seth. Nice job being seated, everybody, even though you were not instructed to do so. I love it. Uh, So good morning, everyone, and welcome to Disciples Church. We are super grateful that you have joined us this morning. That yellow glowing orb in the sky is called the sun, in case you have forgotten. Grateful to see it today. My name is Dave Hahn. I am uh, privileged and honored this morning to open God's word with you. Just over a year ago, I was visiting a friend in Colorado. And while I was there, another friend of mine sent me this text. Dude. I just got a call from someone saying that my wife has been cheating on me. I'm going home to confront her. I stopped what I was doing, called him back and listened as he cried, got angry, and asked for advice. He was suffering, he was desperate, and he needed the healing touch of Jesus. This past December, My uncle got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and he had a stroke. He was alone, but managed to call 911. He was taken to a nearby hospital. The prognosis was not good. The road to recovery was uncertain and very likely a long one. My aunt, uncle, and their sons were suffering. They were desperate and they needed the healing touch of Jesus. And no doubt, 
In a room this size, there are desperate, difficult stories and circumstances. Within the sound of my voice as well, each one needing Jesus. That's the story of the world that we live in, this broken, fallen world. So if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we have been in the book of Mark. And Jesus has been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's been preaching the gospel, and he's been proclaiming the kingdom of God. And while preaching the gospel and proclaiming the kingdom is primarily why Jesus came, in today's passage, we continue in the theme that we've seen so far in the gospel of Mark, Jesus preaching to the lost sheep of Israel while healing the sick, the suffering, and the broken that he encountered. Beginning in verse 40 of Mark chapter 1. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now leprosy, at this time, did not necessarily mean what we think of when we hear that term today. The Greek word used here is lepros, and it was a word used to describe a variety of skin orders and medical issues that they just couldn't quite figure out. According to the Mosaic Law, in Leviticus 13 and 14, leprosy made one ceremonially unclean. It prevented a person from entering Jerusalem and it socially ostracized them from everyday life. Crawling the streets, lepers would cry out, unclean, so that nobody would accidentally bump into them and thus be made unclean themselves. Lepers in this time were thought to have been punished by God for the sins that they committed. This man was an outcast. He was oppressed. He was marginalized. He was unclean. And he was approaching Jesus anyway. Let that be an encouragement and a challenge to you and I. We could also learn something from how this paralytic man approached Jesus. First, he came to Jesus with humility. He kneeled before him, the scripture says. He implored him. This is the posture and the behavior of one who believed nothing was owned to him, but was desperate for Jesus. Second, he came to Jesus with faith. You can make me clean. He recognized and trusted in Jesus' power to heal him of this disease because no one and nothing else could. In the Jewish mind, to be healed of leprosy was the equivalent of being raised from the dead. That's how desperate that situation was. And finally, apart from being humble and coming with faith, this leprous man came to Jesus with a submission to his will. If you will, he said. You see, Jesus didn't heal everyone he encountered. Have you ever thought about that? He didn't heal everyone. He didn't cast out every demon. He didn't heal every disease. He didn't raise everyone from the dead. Jesus did and does what he does according to his Father's will. 
His purposes are far beyond what might seem good to us. And still, Jesus tells us to come to him with our concerns, humbly but expectantly. He tells us to ask him and to keep asking. And he tells us to believe that he can do infinitely more than we imagine. And that in his perfect will, he will give us what we need. Who has heard the phrase, or used it, God answered my prayers. Do you know what people really mean when they say that? God did what I asked him to do, and he did it when and how I asked him. Now, I think that Garth Brooks is partly to blame for this. One of his songs is called Unanswered Prayers. Who knows that song? So in that song, it's all about the things that he asked God for, but was glad that he had never received. Now, I actually think Garth loves Jesus, and I know that it's just a song, but the theology is still really bad. (laughs) Friends, God always hears our prayers and always answers our prayers, but he doesn't always say yes. Sometimes God says no, and no is an answer to. And when God does say yes, he may not mean now. Sometimes God's yes means later. And that which God gives and that which God withholds is far greater and far better than whatever it is that we ask for, even if we can't see it because that is what a good and a perfect father does. Pastor Tim Keller said it this way, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. God will only give you what you would ask for if you knew everything that he knows. If you will, you can make me clean the leper said. Verse 41, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Now your verse 41 may say, filled with compassion. But whatever your translation, isn't it good to know that Jesus has compassion for and pity upon us? Because you know, he doesn't owe that to us. In our sin and in our rebellion, we have dug our own hole and we deserve his wrath. And we have nothing to give him in return. So, Jesus doesn't show compassion to us out of obligation or because of what it will do for him. Rather, it is our sorry state, it is our misery that makes us the object of God's love and his mercy. His power flows from his love and from his grace. And in this story, his love is on display in verse 41. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, it says. He touched one whom the law said he was forbidden to touch for fear of being made unclean himself. Jesus didn't need to touch this man to heal him. So whenever you come across scriptures where Jesus is healing someone, 
and he's putting mud on eyes or he's touching someone, understand that he's not allowing his healing to flow through his hands. It's much bigger than that. Without a word, by touching him, Jesus was saying to this man, you are no longer defiled. You are no longer unclean. You are healed and you are the object of my love. But then Jesus confirmed that healing and he spoke to him and he said, I will be clean. You see, healing lepers and raising the dead were things that only God could do. And that is the significance of this miracle. Jesus was demonstrating what he had been preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. Continuing in verse 42, and immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. In verse 43, we see Jesus give this formerly unclean and leprous man two commands. So let's look at the second of the two. It says, go. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now certainly this man was already made clean by Jesus. So why did Jesus want him to go and talk to the priest and show himself to the priest? Well, practically it was a necessary step for him to re-enter society and to participate in temple worship. That's all found in Leviticus 13 and 14. But I think there are two other bigger reasons for this command. First, it was so that Jesus could show the priests that he had made this man clean as a testimony to the nearness and the power of God. Remember, this is akin to raising someone from the dead. And he wanted the priests to see, hear, and respond to the kingdom of God and to the gospel he was proclaiming to. Second, Jesus wanted to demonstrate to those who would accuse him of disregarding the law that in this case, he expected compliance to it. Leviticus 13 and 14, again, required a priest to declare a person clean from leprosy. And Jesus commanded this man to obey the Mosaic law as it was written because the Bible says that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But what of that first command that Jesus gave in verse 44? He says, see that you say nothing to anyone. Several times, Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus doing miraculous things and commanding people to be silent. But why? Why wouldn't Jesus want God to get glory for the things that he does? I think we get our answer in verse 45. It reads, but he, speaking of the man who had leprosy, went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Verse 45, my friends, shows us the humility and the self-denial of Christ that he wasn't after the shallow glory of publicity. He wasn't interested in being followed for what he could do for people, for his miracles. 
And very likely, it was Jesus' miracle that this formerly leprous man was publicizing while missing the significance of Christ himself entirely. He talked about it, not him. And that's a real danger for you and I too, to make much of the gifts that God gives at the expense of he who gives them. To potentially miss seeing the good things in our lives as gifts or to see God as the giver. My friends, God does the miraculous and he gives good things so that our affections would be stirred for him, not for what he gave. And as we discussed last week, the miracles of Jesus are an extension of the word he came to preach. They point to something much, much bigger, specifically to someone bigger. And make no mistake, Jesus was and is on a mission to proclaim and bring about the kingdom of God, to preach the gospel, the good news of God to as many people as he could, and most people lived in towns. But now Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, in part because the streets could not hold the multitudes who filled it but we'll discover that Jesus would soon have other reasons to avoid entering a town too. So up to this point, everything Jesus has said and done was well received. People were amazed at his words and the things that he did, and they glorified God. There was no real opposition. But as we're about to see, things were going to change. At the beginning of chapter 2, we see Jesus returning to Capernaum. Remember how chapter one just ended. Jesus was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So a few days after healing a leprous man, Jesus' ministry had continued, but not in the towns as it had been happening. He was now in the country, away from the cities, preaching to those who came to him. Do you know why? It is so critical that God sent his spirit to come and live in us, at least in part. Because when Jesus was on earth, he could only be in one place at one time. That's a condition of humanity to be sure. And big crowds could become a hindrance to what Jesus had set out to do. But having been raised from the dead, having ascended to his Father, and having sent his Spirit, through which he lives in all believers, things are different. Jesus is everywhere. By his Spirit, Jesus is where you and I, who love and trust him, are. That's the age of the church that we live in. That was a free mini-sermon, no extra charge. I just thought it was so interesting. So Jesus had returned to Capernaum at the front end of chapter 2, and word got out that Jesus had come home and that he was preaching again. Continuing in verse 3, it reads, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening... 
they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Four men, carrying their paralytic friend, walked up an outside stairway and up to the roof. And verse 4 says, they removed the roof above him and made an opening. I am not so sure that we have a good picture of what actually happened here. They removed the roof and made an opening. It sounds pretty genteel. It would kind of be like describing a full-blown NASCAR wreck as a fender bender. It's a slight understatement. You see, Jewish homes at this time had flat roofs, usually made by and supported with cross beams, and those beams were covered with sticks and dirt and straw and fabric and tile. So imagine that four men climbed onto your roof, and they tore off the shingles, and they ripped up the underlayment, and they tore out the insulation to make a hole big enough to put a body through it. Friends, this is the behavior of desperate, determined, and faith-filled men who likely have a repair job ahead of them. I would dare say that a man could have no better friends than these. These men brought their friend to Jesus, and they wanted and expected Jesus to heal them. One commentator put it this way, These men counted on Jesus healing their friend because it would be a lot harder to bring him back up through the roof than lowering him down. They expected him to walk out. Continuing in verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 5 says that Jesus saw the faith of these men. What does it mean to see someone's faith? Is faith visible? Two weeks ago, we talked about the word believe and that it is similar to the word faith. Friends, we live in a day and age when faith and belief are given great value in and of themselves. But be warned, faith by itself is not enough. It cannot sustain the weight that we place upon it. Faith is dependent on an object outside of itself, an object that has power that it does not possess. To continue in an analogy that I shared two weeks ago, if we have faith that a chair will hold us up and then it does, the chair gets all the credit. It did the work and we don't get to boast. So what Jesus saw in these men was faith in him, the object of their faith. They showed Jesus that they believed he could heal their paralytic friend by picking him up on his mat, dragging him through the crowded streets, climbing on top of the roof, ripping a hole in it, and lowering him down to where Jesus was. Friends, faith is seen in and through the actions that we take. That's how you see faith. 
And in the leprous man, we see faith demonstrated in his crawling to and his kneeling before and his imploring of Jesus. And in this story, we see faith demonstrated in the determination of these four men going to great lengths to bring their paralyzed friend to the only one who could heal him. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Imagine what these four men are thinking at Jesus' words. Um, yeah, we dragged him over here and put him through the roof so that he could walk, not be forgiven. Isn't that just like us, though? To misunderstand what it is that we most need. Jesus was standing in a crowded house filled with people who thought that their biggest problems were the Romans, taxes, and their diseases. But what Jesus wanted to communicate to them was this. Yes, those things are problems, but you've got bigger things to worry about, like sin and death. And that is the root of all of your pain and your suffering. As one author put it, forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It has the greatest cost. It brings the greatest blessing and provides the most lasting results. Now, according to verse 6, there were also religious leaders in this house. Scribes who rightly believed that only God could forgive sin. And what Jesus wanted to communicate to them and to us is that you are right when you say that only God can forgive sin. What sinners need is forgiveness. What dead people need is life. And what Jesus was saying was, I have come to give both. That's why I've come. Verse 8, and immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? This passage begins with Jesus reading the minds and the hearts of the scribes. I bet that was uncomfortable for them. Verse 8 says the scribes never spoke out loud, but that Jesus knew what they were thinking anyway. And he continues in verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus' question to the scribes in verse 9 is a tricky one. Which is easier? The reason that it's a tricky question is because man can't heal paralytics or raise the dead. It's impossible all the way around. But not so with God. Not so with God. You see, Jesus started 
by forgiving the paralytic sins. But forgiveness is kind of an invisible thing. It's hard to get your eyes on it. But if Jesus were to heal this man, and he got up and he walked, something easily verifiable, maybe his sins were forgiven too. Now, Jesus did not know this man. And as far as we know, this man had never explicitly repented of anything. And yet, Jesus' first words to him were, Son, your sins are forgiven. A full pardon from divine judgment. For Jesus to forgive this man's sins without his having repented or asking to be forgiven makes no sense. Unless, like the scribes, Jesus knew the inner thoughts and the heart motivations of this man too. And by listening to his heart, Jesus heard this man's plea for grace and his cry for forgiveness. And Jesus, in his mercy, forgave him. See, Jesus knows and sees the hearts of men and women. The Spirit, the Bible says, understands our groanings. And if the cry of your heart is, Lord, have mercy, you will receive mercy. If the cry of your heart is, forgive me, you will be forgiven. No matter how imperfect or how inarticulate that cry may be. So what is your heart saying to God? What does he see when he looks within? By Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, we are also told that first and foremost, every sin is ultimately against God. You see, a person can only forgive the sins that have been committed against them. If I were to wrong my wife, Sheila, Jonathan cannot say, I forgive you for the wrong that I committed against her. Only Sheila can do that. Friends, at its root, every sin against man is a sin against God who made man and commands us to love him and one another. Every sin is ultimately a sin against God. And this paralytic man, in his contrite heart, understood that and received from Jesus what he needed most. And after forgiving this man, he said to him, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man did. One commentator made this observation. To a rabbi, there is no sick man healed of his sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. To the Jews, a sick man was a man with whom God was angry. So in his getting up, rising up, going home, what they saw was a forgiven man 
healed in body and healed in his spirit. In the eyes of those gathered around him, in one act, Jesus had shown that he was the long-awaited Messiah, that he was, in fact, God. That's what he meant by using the term son of man in verse 10. Do you know that the term son of man is only used by Jesus to describe himself? Nobody else used that as a self-description. Listen to Daniel chapter 7 so you can get a read on what the Jews would have been thinking as they heard this phrase, son of man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is who Jesus says he is. And this is who Jesus demonstrated himself to be having the exclusive power to forgive sins that he had not committed. The power to heal bodies he breathed life into and the authority to judge a world that he had created. Jesus' claim to be God is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. It is what caused the opposition that he encountered. It is what shocked his hearers, and it is ultimately what got him killed. So what will you and I do with his claim? Will you stand amazed and worship and glorify him like those who witnessed the healing of the paralytic, or will you reject him like the scribes, pushing aside his just and perfect rule because you want to be God? Friends, are you desperate for Jesus today? And not just for what he can give you. Are you determined to know him and be with him? To crawl through and over whatever it is that stands in your way? Is it your desire to see others encounter Jesus as you bring them to him? to bring these friends before Jesus in prayer, to help them know Jesus in his word, and to let them see him in and through your daily lives. Is that where you are? See, our fallen world is filled with desperation, disease, and brokenness, and only Jesus can restore what is broken and give to us what we truly need. So when my friend told me about what was happening in his marriage, all he cared about was seeing that relationship restored. Rightly so. But in time, like the paralytic man, he realized and learned that he had a bigger problem. He was spiritually dead, and he didn't know Jesus. And in the weeks that followed, in his desperation, Christ saved my friend, and began to make him new. And it was through understanding and experiencing how much he had been forgiven by Christ that he was able to forgive his wife, to begin healing, and to find restoration in his marriage. When my uncle 
arrived at the hospital after his stroke, each day had its challenges. It seemed that when one physical issue got fixed, another one had popped up. And in time, he was transferred to another hospital. And after three weeks, he and my aunt were told that he would need hospice care, that there was nothing more that they could do. Shocked, in part, they dealt with the news well because they love and trust in Jesus. They rest in his grace and forgiveness. They know in whose hand his breath lies. And three days later, my uncle went home to Jesus. Though we had earnestly asked and prayed for healing, trusting in God's power and his sovereign will. But before my uncle died, a chaplain visited and shared these wise words with my aunt. God brings healing in different ways and at different times. Sometimes God heals by bringing us home to him. Sometimes God heals by bringing us home to him. Friends, God is good. He is strong. He is kind. He is compassionate. And he is merciful. He has the power to heal all that ails us. And what ails all of us is sin. The leprosy and the paralysis of our souls far worse than all other trials or concerns. And it is our sin that Jesus came to forgive and put his healing hands and feet to, stretched out on a cross for you and for me. And unless we see ourselves as desperate, we will not come to him. And we will not understand the significance of his sacrifice on our behalf. And for those he loves, God also promises to restore all that is broken in our body, mind, and spirit. Be encouraged. But in his perfect will, it might not be in the here and the now. It may be that healing won't come to us until he brings us home to him. But rest assured, my brothers and sisters, true cleansing has come for those who believe and full healing will come to all those who have been forgiven by God and made alive in his son. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But until that day comes, may we seek him earnestly and humbly. May we be filled with faith in him Surrender to his will and point this lost and dying world to him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you hear our prayers and that you always answer, asking us to trust that you know what is best for us. We thank you that you do not turn away the humble, you will not ignore those who implore you in desperation, that you are the great physician and healer of our souls. Apart from you, 
we are and we have nothing. Help us to abide in you and to receive good things from you, turning our praise to you who is worthy of it. Give us eyes to see what truly ails us while also believing that there is no concern of ours of which you are not aware of and familiar with and will bring healing to. Would you give us eyes to recognize the broken among us and to carry them unto you, believing you hear the cry of their hearts and will give them what they most need. There is none like you, Lord, and we offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. In you, God, we live and move and have our being. In you, Jesus, we find our salvation. Thank you for forgiving us and giving us life to the full. It is for your most beautiful name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.